Hello, I'm Sandra Harvey and I attend the 8am service. And today I'm going to read Psalm 78 verses 1 to 8. O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in our Australian culture, we all know these three famous words that everyone knows and agrees on, lest we forget. Lest we forget. Lest we forget what? Well, lest we forget World War I. Lest we forget that even today we're, we're celebrating, we're celebrating, we're remembering that today, 103 years ago, these next three weeks that we're in right now, mark the final heroic battles of our Australian infantry forces in France under Lieutenant General Sir John Monash. See, by the 5th of October, Monash's forces had broken through the German lines on so many occasions and inflicted such devastating losses that the end of the conflict was now no longer in doubt. And then, on the 11th hour, the 11th minute, the 11th day of the month, 1918, all hostilities ceased. The First World War came to its end, and we've been remembering these events ever since so that we don't go back there. And so we say, lest we forget. Why? Well, if, if we combine together the uh, casualties, civilian and military, from 1914 to 1918, there was some 17 million deaths and 23 million wounded. That's a, a, a mind-numbingly horrendous number. Even in those unparalleled last six months of success of our Australian troops fighting under Monash, 27,000 Australian men were killed or wounded. Now, I've had the privilege of visiting some of the battlefield areas in France, grave sites, memorials and such in that area. And I must say it is a sobering experience in the extreme. Sobering. And not least of all because hey, I've got four sons, all in fighting age. No wonder we say with conviction, lest we forget. And we don't forget by choosing to remember, by choosing to remember, by choosing to tell the stories, by choosing to share everything with the next generation, the younger generations coming through. 
And so we make sure to read them the history books, to take them to those annual services, to visit memorials, to go to the battlefields, to tell those stories by making a persistent, careful investment in all of these things. Generation by generation by generation, we'll work together to ensure that no one forgets. And why do we need to make sure that no one forgets such horror and such awful things that would be great to just rip out and, and ignore? Why? Why is it so important not to forget? At the very least, it's so that we remember and celebrate the incredible sacrifice, what was done on our behalf. And that's a good, and that's a noble, and that's a highly important thing that should never be overlooked. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's more than that. Not only should we commemorate those, those glorious sacrifices of the past, we must not forget the failures of the past that made them necessary. We must not forget those things so that we don't repeat them. So that we don't repeat them in the future. Lest we repeat is the full sentiment that stands behind the lest we forget of Remembrance Day. Lest we repeat is the driving motive of our, mem of our remembrance of these things. And lest we repeat, well, that is the driving motive of Psalm 78 before us in the Bible today. Psalm 78 was written 3,000 years ago after David had been established as king in Jerusalem, possibly as late as a temple construction, maybe at the start of his reign, it's written in that time frame. David was that first king of the tribe of Judah, and he was God's choice for Israel's future. Before this moment in Israel, the tribe of Judah had contributed very, very little to leadership in Israel's history. And while the other tribes had all supplied some version of leader, leadership, some judge or something at different times, the dominant leadership tribe of all was Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, always Ephraim. Now, it's a strange name to our ears, but it makes perfect sense when we recall that Ephraim was the favorite son of Joseph, who was the favorite son of Jacob. And do you remember Joseph? You remember that, that guy down the chucked down the hole by his brothers and then becomes, you know, prime minister of Egypt, sold into slavery to get rid of him. But God raised him up to be their saviour and not just the saviour of his family, but the saviour of all Egypt and all the surrounding nations as well in that generation. Remember him? Well, Joseph's second son, Ephraim, followed in the footsteps of his dad. Ephraim, most significantly of all, embodied that leadership in Israel's early history. And he was the one, well, one of his descendants, led the Israelites into the promised land through Joshua, who was their greatest leader. And ominously, in the future, beyond David's time, we'll find that Ephraim will again emerge as the alternate leadership tribe of Israel and will actually lead them away from God. But for now... Asaph doesn't know that as he writes this psalm. For now, with the tribe of Judah on the throne, Asaph writes this thing he calls his maskil, this, this teaching. It's like a parable, this thing we know today as Psalm 78. And his focus is firmly fixed on remembering and learning from the past failures 
of Ephraim and how they led the nation. Recalling them and teaching these things to the young so that these failures aren't repeated in the future. Lest we forget Ephraim, says Asaph. Lest we repeat Ephraim and what happened under their leadership, says Asaph. And what were those failures? What were the sins of Ephraim that put Israel through so much misery? Well, there's a whole lot that's catalogued in the coming 64 verses of the psalm, but they all stem from what we find here at verse 4, this basic failure to remember the past and teach the next generation. This was their basic failure. They failed to remember the past and to teach the next generation. Check it out. Verse 4. We will not hide from them their descendants. Sorry, we'll not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Now Asaph calls to Israel saying, if we tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, and if we diligently teach these commands to them, then well, they will be able to pass them on to their generation. Every future generation will be better than the past. So that, verse 7, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Now, this is, of course, of what was supposed to have happened and had been God's good design from the beginning. In fact, more than a design, it had actually been God's command for it to happen like this. Famous passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 12, Moses teaching the people before that generation that Joshua was going to lead into the nation. As they go out, he says to them to impress these things on your children so that you and they might enjoy a long life and it might go well with you living long as God's people in God's place under God's rule. Be careful that you do not forget these things. Remember them and remember them out loud to your children. Do it when you lie down. Do it when you get up. Do it when you go out the door. Do it when you come back in the door. Do it here. Do it there. Do it everywhere. Whatever you do and do it now and keep on doing it. Asaph is convinced that if the Israelites do this faithfully, unlike what had been happening, if they actually do this faithfully, then verse 8 won't happen to the next generation. Verse 8, they would not be like their ancestors. A stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. Well, this is Asaph's argument, his big idea. This is the legacy that he longs to build. And to show us how significant this is, Asaph then, from verse 9 onwards, describes what should have been supplied and should have been taught from every generation of Israelites to the next. The proof of how they went wrong. 
This is what he makes sure he records now, what they did wrong and how from Zoan in Egypt, verse 12, to Zion in Israel, verse 68, they kept getting it wrong so that God had to continually intervene to give the next generation another chance. Asaph is a master, a master storyteller. And like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, when he too tells a similar tale of the failures of Israel over those many centuries, Asaph makes it very clear in this who God is and what God is like in contrast to his chosen people who are faithless and disloyal in return. In fact, if you haven't yet read the Old Testament from Genesis through to 1 Samuel, well, Psalm 78, it supplies a magazine-like summary. This is kind of like the Reader's Digest version of Genesis 1 to uh, 1 Samuel. 800 years of Israel's history. What does it look like? Well, what's that relationship look like? Well, Psalm 78 lays it out for us in you know, just a few verses. And what was it like? It was a tale of contrasts. A tale of contrast. On the one hand, we see the constant generational failures of Israel. And on the other hand, we see the constant faithfulness of God to each generation, despite Israel's faithlessness. Throughout these 800 years, Israel's constant failure to remember and teach the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, well, it just meant that they fell deeper and deeper and deeper into sin with each successive generation. Disbelief that God was good in saving them led to discontent with their circumstances. No matter how amazing or how good or how impressive God's miracles were, they conveniently didn't notice them. They just didn't notice. And they continually then promptly forgot and so their hearts were, were not loyal to him and they were not faithful to his covenant, even when he punished them for it. Not even the miraculous saving presence of the Lord right before their eyes. He's there in a, a cloudy pillar of fire and smoke there every single day for them to see, even when it's that visible. That wasn't enough for them to speak about him truthfully to their children. Therefore, as soon as they did arrive in the promised land, they did forget the merciful goodness of the Lord and they gave themselves over to worshipping idols instead. Ironically, worshipping the very idols of the people whom God had sent them to punish for worshipping those idols. That's what they immediately did. Now for us looking on, this, this, this long history of failure, it's kind of mind-numbing. It, it, and just, especially in how culpably faithless and foolish they were. It, it's not just that they, you know, happened to forget because life got busy. It wasn't just, you know, the negligence of, I forgot to turn off the iron. Oops, it was a mistake. No, this was a clear decision. A clear decision that laid out for us. The Israelites deliberately chose to forget. Worse still, they even chose to then reinterpret the good deeds of the Lord and the saving power of the Lord. They, they chose to reinterpret that amazing things that he'd done into negative terms. This wasn't you know, doubt in the face of no evidence that led to the unbelief of Israel and their idolatry. No, this was a clear decision 
with the evidence there right in front of their eyes. And as we read through this long tale of failure, we're left in, in no shadow of doubt that if it wasn't for God's steadfast faithfulness, the, if it wasn't for his grace continually being poured out on them, if it wasn't for his persistent, consistent, patient, merciful interventions, generation by generation, then they wouldn't exist at all. And so the psalm ends by rehearsing again another one of God's interventions. And that is in the giving of the kingship to the tribe of Judah. And now at last, God gets the glory he deserves in Israel. Rejecting the strong and numerous Ephraim, God establishes a no-name shepherd from the tribe of Judah, a shepherd called David. And through him, God will build what comes next, not least the temple in Jerusalem. So even though the people forgot and rebelled, God was faithful. And God put things to right again in this generation that Asaph is writing about with David here. And so says Asaph, lest we forget, lest we repeat. But you know what? As, as much as Asaph gives us the impression and leaves us with the impression that things will improve from this point on, now that David's on the throne, well, you and I know, we've read the next section, haven't we? We know it doesn't. It doesn't improve. Read on past David's son Solomon and into the history of one and two kings. Read on all the way through to the prophet Malachi and we'll see Israel do precisely the same thing again and again and again and again. In every single generation that follows, they forget. And they reinterpret. In all of Israel's long Old Testament history, never once do the older generations not let down the young. Never once do they not let down the young. Never once do they remember to declare the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord and diligently teach his commands. Never once. In fact, even once we get to the New Testament and we meet the faithful Pharisees, who, those who diligently search the scriptures, we're told there, and those who go out of their way to teach the minuscule parts of the law, everything they can to the nation, even they again fail their children by condemning Jesus in Jerusalem. And they do it by actually using the very same scriptures that actually prove who he was. That reinterpretation of evidence, here it is again. It was, it was astonishing foolishness. foolishness. I mean, think on it. You know, here is the king of Israel descended from the tribe of Judah, repeating all the miracles of the Exodus, cleansing the temple like was seen with the prophets, and saying to the nation, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And what do they do with him? 
they falsely accuse him and crucify him as a liar and a blasphemer. And then in perhaps, I know what to me is, is probably the most chilling verse in the Bible, in all the Bible. This one just makes my heart shiver. We read in Matthew 27, verse 25, when Pilate publicly declared Jesus innocent of any wrongdoing and washed his hands in, of the whole situation in front of all the people of Israel, the people there declare this as one. Let his blood be upon us and our children. And so it happened, exactly as they asked. For in the next generation, just as Jesus predicted it would, Jerusalem was destroyed. And the children of those who rejected Jesus were put to the sword by the Romans in one of the greatest slaughters in history. How's that for the ultimate generational failure? Lest we forget. Lest, lest we repeat. And where's God in all this? Well, he is where he always is. Where Israel was, was faithless and rebellious and disloyal, God again is always steadfast, faithful and true. Because remember that innocent blood of Jesus? What was it shed for? Well, it wasn't shed in vain. It was shed for those same people's forgiveness. And, and not for theirs only, but for the sins of the whole world. Beyond Israel, beyond that generation, beyond that geographical nation. It's just as the Apostle Peter declared in Pentecost, at Pentecost in Jerusalem. A few weeks later, when the people there finally realized their sin, that they'd done the wrong thing by putting Jesus to death, they were cut to the heart and they asked, well, what do we do now? What do we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. And that call has gone out into all the earth and down each generation. And here you and I are gathered today. Here we are gathered today. We are the result of that faithful intervention of God working by his spirit through that first generation of Christians who wrote the New Testament that we have access to today. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, they went out of their way to pass on to their children the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord to record those things and all his new covenant commands and they're published for us. From that first generation, the 27 books of the New Testament for us to read and return to. Friends, the only reason we exist at all today in this generation is because God has made sure of it. The praise goes to him. He will be glorified in his people. He will intervene. Read the end of the book. Flip over to Revelation. Find out what it says there and we can see how it ends. God will be glorified in his people. 
Despite the failures of his people, God will be successful in saving a people for himself through his son. God's powerful enough to do it? Oh, yes, he is. Is he good enough to do it? Oh, yes, we see again and again in the Bible, he is. Has God bothered himself to do it? Oh, yes, he sent his son for us. We know the evidence is before our eyes. It is recorded. And in this way, God's culpability and kindness, that's not the issue that we need to worry about here in the northern Illawarra today. Will, will God act? Is he busy? Is he doing the right things? That's not the question we need to ask. No, the real question, the one we actually need an answer for, the one we need to answer ourselves is, who will we be? Who will you and I be in the record of history? Will we be faithful to the Lord and play our part? When some poet of the future, some Asaph, retells the story of you and I who lived in 2021 in the northern Illawarra, how will our legacy be remembered? How will our legacy be recorded? Will we be remembered as those who went out of our way to pass on to the next generation the commands and praiseworthy deeds of the Lord? Or will we go down in history like Asaph recorded here as, as just another stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him, and who actually condemned the next generation? by our refusal to speak. Who will we be? Who will we be? Friends, it, it, it's not something that we can answer alone. It's not something that we should attempt either as individuals. Yes, we each need to act, but th th this is something we can do together. See, in God's kindness, in God's kindness, he's given each of us, you and I, for one another, and he has supplied in this church family here at Beloit Anglican, an expert in this endeavor of how to share the good news with the next generation. And I want you to hear more from this person. Now, I was hoping to put her in front of you, you know, right here and interview her and we can find out all kinds of stuff. But, you know, COVID being all that it currently is, the next best thing we can do or did do was produce a video. So here's our kids and youth minister, Kat Harris, to tell us, how we can be intentional about intergenerational ministry. Let's hear what she has to say. Intergenerational ministry is a topic that is close to my heart. As a mum, I wish for my children to grow knowing Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And as the youth and children's minister of our church, I wish this for all our families too. The task at hand is huge. These are our precious little people that we're talking about. The developing babies and toddlers, the exploring preschoolers, our energetic primary schoolers and our transforming teens on the cusp of independence and adulthood. Intergenerational ministry is difficult to define because it is a philosophy and not a program. It's not about doing more, but instead it's about being rather than doing. It's about building significant and meaningful interactions between the generations within the context of the church. 
Intergenerational ministry occurs when a congregation intentionally brings the generations together in mutual sharing, in serving and in learning within the core activities of church in order to live out being the body of Christ. Each part is varied and is valued. Within what we functionally do as a church, that means recruiting and training leaders from all the ages and stages of life to bring the good news of Jesus to the hearts of our young people. Our leaders for the kids and youth ministries in our church are not just chosen from the 19-year-olds who we think have the time and energy, so let's just let them do it. No, our leaders are dads and mums, they're young workers, they're high school students, they're grandparents and they are young adults because yes, we still do need the energy and their zeal for the Lord. Like a balanced diet is good for our physical health, so is an age and stage variety in leadership good for our spiritual health as a church. All generations are encouraged and it is a fine mix indeed. We also seek opportunities for the children to be involved in our Sunday services and special services and they start in the church services for singing and prayer for this reason. They are valued, they are part of our community and the noise and the movement that they bring enriches us, it is a joyful noise. Though I personally know the struggle of having wiggly little people who add to the noise and the stress that, you could, that this can make you feel. Can I say though, it is a season. Please don't lose heart and please don't stop coming because of this season. Your little people are actually a blessing to us all. And we know church does not stop at the door. In fact, it starts at home. And as Psalm 78 in Deuteronomy 6 says, teach the truths of God as you walk along the road, talk about them when you sit at home. And in our 2021 context, you might also say, talk and sing about them when you're in the car driving around. Write messages in the sand at the beach. Share the truth of Jesus over FaceTime with your grandkids, with your nieces and your nephews, and on picnics with your friends and their kids. And pray and encourage the parents who are doing their best every day. What a legacy it is to see children raising their own children who know and love Jesus. Oh, I can't say that without tearing up. Oh, the task is huge. But what can be more wonderful than a community of God's people from every age and stage meeting together around the world because they love God and they love his people. And as we come out of lockdown and these spaces that you've seen today begin to fill with people again, yay, would you consider joining our youth and our children's ministries and share the gospel with the young people and see the generations come together to proclaim Jesus as Lord for the glory of God. Thanks. Bye. What a question to ask us. Would we consider bringing together the generations to proclaim Jesus as Lord to the glory of God? What a question to ask us. Would we consider it? I mean, how good would it be to see that happen more and more and more at Bulleye Anglican, not less? And especially, I love her encouragement there, age and stage variety in leadership is good for our spiritual health. Indeed it is. All of us are needed with everything that each of us brings, not just you know, the, the young punk who you know, looks like they've got too much time on their hands, we've got to put them in front of the kids. No, no, no. All of us are needed with each thing that all of us brings. And, and nor should we be those who say, well, it's the parents' job. Where are the parents? Because we all know that there's no single parent who is sufficient for sharing all of the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. Just as it takes a village to raise a child, at least you know, every, the unbelievers all understand that, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, let me say it takes a church family to raise a Christian, speak into their lives, especially the teenagers.
In fact, as Asaph in this psalm makes amply clear, the older generations of God's people, the older generations of the church are the most important generations in the church because we possess the, young, uh, the information the younger generations need to hear. Let me say it again. The older generations of this church, the most important generation, because you possess the information the young don't know yet, the stuff they need to hear. The question still remains, will you speak? Will we speak? Because I'm not pointing the finger at you. No, no, I'm in this too. There are people younger than me in this church also. I too must faithfully speak. And if I don't know how, I need to get trained in how to speak and find out how to do it. And where I can't reach, well, I can equip and encourage and send others to do it. And I can pray for them to be faithful. And I can give financially to the work to make sure it doesn't stop when I'm not present. Are there any younger people than you? Do you know anyone, anyone at all who is younger than you? Not just the kids, but anyone who's just a little bit younger than you, who doesn't yet know what you know? Are there younger people than you in our church family? Are there younger people than you in our schools? Are there younger people in our local community? Are there younger people than you in your home? Well, that's good if they are, but here's the real question. Are they hearing from us? Are they hearing from us the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord? Are we sharing those things with them? Now, if yes, then let's celebrate that and let's keep it happening. Yes, to the glory of God. But if no, well, then let's be those who do something about it. Let's be those. The opportunity lies open before us all. What will we say to the younger people around us? What will we pray for each other as we speak? What will we say to the young? What are we going to say? What will we pray for the young? Will we speak of the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord that we've seen this week, that we read in our Bibles? What will we say? Well, I say, Let's not forget. Let's not repeat. Instead, let's be those who speak. Amen.